1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome Amy Guida to the show today to talk about her important new book, Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. Amy Guida is the perfect person to address this issue, since she's both a professor of law at Tulane Law School and a former journalist, as well as one of the country's top experts on privacy in the media. She was an award-winning legal commentator on Illinois public radio stations, has written for the New York Times and for Slate, and provided expert commentary for The New Yorker, as well as many other publications. Amy lives in New Orleans. Amy Guida, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Before we begin to talk about your book, tell us a little bit about yourself. Was there someone or something that strongly influenced your intellectual development and particularly your interest in this topic specifically?
0: I wouldn't say that there was a particular person, uh, but but working as a journalist uh, over a number of years, I, I came to uh, recognize this conflict between truth and privacy at times. So in other words, I would find out uh, information about people that I considered private and I would make the call not to report that information. And and what I found interesting was that when I became a law student and then a lawyer, uh, I came to understand that the law uh, also protects people's privacy in this way. And so, even though I was making uh, ethics decisions uh, back in the day, uh, the law also recognizes privacy. And so, I think that's really a big motivation uh, for me. This is uh, this is the area that I study. I study defamation as well, but I'm particularly interested in privacy because of this conflict between uh, truth uh, and um, and press freedom, uh, and all those good things, uh, but then also an individual's um, right to privacy, uh, the, the right to keep uh, something secret.
1: And now that you've been accomplished in both those professions, does the conflict between the right to privacy and freedom of the press look different to you depending on which hat you wear?
0: Yeah, I would say that's a that's a really wonderful question. And I would say uh, yes. And and this isn't the the, this is the thing that comes to mind Uh, earlier this uh, this summer, uh, earlier this year, this summer, uh, when the Dobbs opinion uh, was was leaked uh, to to the media. Thinking about this as um, a lawyer and a law professor, I was horrified uh, that someone would do something uh, like this. Uh, but thinking about it as a journalist, uh, I was intrigued uh, and, of course, wondered who had leaked it uh, and certainly would have done the same thing um, uh, as did Politico in uh uh, publishing uh, the document that was um, that was uh, somehow uh, given to to them, so so I think it's that sort of that it, it, that that conflict then uh, was very apparent to me um, uh, back this summer when the Dobbs uh, opinion was was leaked.
1: Well, the leaking of the Dobbs opinion was one big issue. But what, what are the implications of the Dobbs decision for Americans' right to privacy?
0: That's it's a really great question. And it, it depends on how you define privacy, at least uh, in looking at the Dobbs opinion. Uh, people are, of course, very concerned that uh, all the, the decisions by the Supreme Court that built on uh, Roe versus Wade and Griswold before it, um, marriage equality uh, uh, cases like that could come tumbling down uh, in a post Dobbs world. Um, the court uh, suggested that a constitutional right had to appear in the text of the Constitution or be deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions, and uh, and because of that, and the way they looked at uh, abortion and autonomy and privacy in that sense certainly uh, uh, all uh, those um, the it put all of those uh, rights in danger but but what's interesting uh, to me um, you know beyond my worries uh, about Dobbs is that that the court uh, differentiated between uh, that type of privacy that that type of right, the right to make and implement important personal decisions. So the right to decide to have an abortion without um, government governmental interference uh, versus the right to shield information from disclosure. And so in other words, even as it crushed this notion of um, Privacy in um, the ability to uh, decide whether or not to have an abortion. Uh, it it suggested that there was another different type of privacy, this right to shield information from disclosure. And so, in that sense, even though we think about Dobbs doing away with uh, privacy more generally, uh, it doesn't. And the court suggests that, in fact. Uh, it might look at that uh, right to shield information from disclosure differently. So, so it'll be interesting to see what um, what happens in the future. I'll just I'll mention one uh, interesting case. Uh, that's several months before the Supreme Court decided the Dobbs decision. Uh, it suggested that uh, that there would be a privacy interest in uh something in certain data points and, and what that case was was it, it involved a, a tax law that had been passed in California and that law ordered charities to reveal donors uh to the state uh and those charities didn't want to reveal who the donors were and so the case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and there, the justices, the same justices that decided Dobbs, suggested that there would be privacy in that sort of information. Uh, they, they literally said that there were privacy interests in things like home addresses, uh, and, and they were particularly worried about doxing in that scenario, the revelation of personal information uh, about people uh, on the internet. Uh, and the suggestion that people should go to um, others' homes to protest. Uh, and And so they were very worried about the revelation of of those data points. Um, and And I think that that suggests that indeed, if the court were to decide uh, uh, a case involving this right to shield information from disclosure, it would look at it very differently from the way it looked at the Dobbs decision. So um, so by my read, uh, Dobbs does not do away with privacy more generally. Uh, it troublingly does away with this, um, this particularized uh, uh, right to abortion uh, in that sense. Uh, But but it looks at that other type of privacy, uh, I would argue, very differently, even though uh, arguably they both have the same um, foundations in this right to be let alone um, that that sort of sensibility.
1: And there's another way of looking at privacy or another type of privacy. Um, I'm not sure if the law considers it, but um, anyone with a heart had to cheer when uh, alex jones of infowars lost the libel case against him and had to pay millions of dollars in uh, damages but he had been free for years to abuse bereaved parents of murdered children for profit before being held accountable is this the best the law can do to protect what I'm suggesting is the privacy of vulnerable crime victims and their families.
0: So that, that's a really intriguing question as well. When I, when I talk with my students about privacy uh, I, I don't talk about it only in the, this sense that I, that I just mentioned this right to shield information from disclosure. Uh, It also touches on uh, another tort, another legal wrong uh, that is uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress um, or uh, negligent infliction of emotional distress. That sensibility uh, that that you suggest existed um, in in the parents, uh, not so much just in a in a defamation sense in ruining their reputations, but in also harming them emotionally, and and more recently, uh, back in the 70s and and 80s, it was very difficult to win one of these emotional distress cases. Uh, And and the reason why was because of the interest in the First Amendment on the other side. So the suggestion that, you know, we wanted to celebrate freedom of speech, freedom of the press. uh, And therefore, it was very, very difficult for anyone to try to argue that speech had harmed them emotionally because courts were very interested in protecting speech over um, over emotions. You know, the the thought was get a get a thicker skin. Um, more recently, because of what's happened uh, on the internet, courts are much more amenable to accepting these emotional distress claims. And so, in in cases like that, and and um, and uh, my suggestion here is that uh, that. That courts are uh, looking to things other than reputation, and suggesting that the law should uh, protect people who've been harmed in those ways, and and you see that beyond um, just that sort of loss. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's there's a fairly recent case uh, involving a, a parent who uh, had. Uh, her child's autopsy report released to the media, uh, and she sued for, um, for uh, an invasion of privacy. She sued for the right to privacy, and she was successful there. Uh, and, and in that case, uh, the court again suggested that, um, that that moment, that sort of, um, that moment, that, that there's a privacy uh, in, um, in death uh, that can lead to um, uh, deep emotional harm if, in fact, information about that death is released, and so that too is uh, is a way the law is changing, um, and and I relate it very much with what's happening on the internet, the um, the the revelation of. Um, of death images, the revelation of um, you know deep uh, uh, emotionally relevant uh, video uh, that uh, that might be released, um, and courts' recognition of of the long lasting harm that can come from that information uh, being revealed in the first place, uh, but then also remaining on the internet for a very very long time. Is there a difference? in this
1: emotional arena between societies that view privacy as a question of dignity, such as uh, Great Britain, uh, and the U.S., which sees it in the context of liberty, uh, freedom, and the freedom of the press?
0: Well, I I think that uh, recently, again, more and more Courts, when they are deciding privacy cases, are suggesting, are using sometimes the word dignity, uh, and so and so again in the in the early days. When I say early days, what do I mean? I mean the seventies, the eighties, and the early nineties. Uh, it was very much about about freedom, um, and yet uh, and yet through these examples that I've just mentioned and others. Uh, some of which literally use the word dignity, Uh, I suggest that we're moving in the United States uh, toward that model uh, of at least thinking about um, dignity uh, in, um, in a privacy sense in deciding these sorts of cases.
1: Well, each point of view can enable a certain kind of abuse. Uh, What talk about the abuse that the privacy too much privacy can afford
0: sure so so what I like to um, what I like to, to think about when when I think about that uh, that issue is uh, back in the very early days of the United States in the 1700s uh, two founders John Adams and William Cushing the uh, Got together, were writing letters to each other, and they were discussing the First Amendment, uh, and and there was the suggestion, of course, that the First Amendment would promise uh, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, uh, and and they they uh, were concerned about this because they thought that there would be uh, that that some men had secrets uh, that should remain secret and not be revealed by the press. And they called these uh, these secrets instances of male conduct, and what that meant were, was um, sexual dalliances outside of marriage. And so Cushing writes to John Adams and says, "You know, we have this First Amendment that promises uh, freedom of the press. Could could this uh, mean that uh, that the press would be able to publish?" instances of male conduct, including instances of male conduct by politicians. And John Adams replied, oh, no, that's not the sort of thing that the First Amendment would protect. Uh, so this suggestion that uh, the, very in the earliest days of the United States, uh, that, uh, that there would be privacy um, for politicians in these instances of male conduct. And you see that uh, throughout the course of history, Thomas Jefferson attempted to um, put um, in jail and successfully did uh, a newspaper editor who reported uh, that uh, he was having a sexual relationship with one of the women he had uh, enslaved. Sally Hemings uh, moved to Grover Cleveland. Uh, Grover Cleveland uh, had um, uh, a number of um Uh, issues um, in his life, including uh, early sexual dalliances again, uh, and uh, why he particularly uh, asked for privacy when he was president was that he began dating and thereafter married uh, a young woman uh, he was the uh, foster father to. Uh, so he'd helped raise her from the time her father died when she was 13 and when she beat, she uh, turned 18, he started dating her uh, and and begged for privacy um, in in that relationship and and you see that sort of protection uh, for privacy in politics um, um, even even today and, and the example that, Uh, that I use um, in my book is the fact that even though a lot of people really want to see Donald Trump's tax returns, uh, we still have not seen those tax returns, even though people have them. And one of the reasons his his lawyers have have made the argument uh, that those tax returns are private uh, and so, so when there's this, this specter of privacy, uh, many times it shuts people down, um, you know, look to see the number of times when a politician or, um, a public figure requests privacy when something big happens in their lives, you know, oh, we must, you know, please give us, give us privacy. Uh, that privacy then can prevent very important reporting from, um, from happening and it, refers in a sense, not only to law, but also the ethics provisions that, um, that I talked about initially. Those reasons why journalists and other publishers may decide not to publish something that, that the, the, the public would be particularly interested in. Uh, but if we decide, we as journalists decide that the news value is uh, not as significant as the person's interest in privacy, that might not ever be reported. And so, and so again, uh, while we have this, this trend in the United States moving to embrace privacy more, not in a Dobbs sense, uh, but in this right to shield information from disclosure, um, it's, it's, it's a dangerous time because uh, journalism is in trouble financially, and certainly uh, it can be chilled uh, by this, this specter of a, a privacy um, lawsuit um, uh, being brought against, uh, against a journalist uh, for reporting truth, uh, truth that a politician or a public figure might consider private uh, and truth that then could become the basis for an invasion of privacy claim.
1: Some writers, most notably George Orwell in 1984, and actually some writers before him, described a world of total transparency which was conflated with totalitarianism. Uh, That is, lack of privacy is somehow associated with totalitarianism.
0: Uh, Are they necessarily linked? So so when you when you suggest this it 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 brings to mind this uh this how how people respond to privacy and especially uh privacy with regard to government uh and and before i talk about that a, a little bit let me just say that uh that now for two years i've um i've asked my uh my big uh, first-year law class, my torts class, uh, whether they fear um, government knowing their information or public companies, so companies uh, knowing information uh, about them. And when I first started teaching privacy 20 years ago, the real concern was government and what government knew. And the concern was uh, cameras on telephone poles uh, watching every move of um, the people on the street. For the past two years, at least, uh, that has flipped. Uh, And now my students are far less concerned about what the government knows about them they recognize that there are cameras on the street. They recognize, in fact, they say that uh, that they are recorded um, by government from the time they leave a building until uh, they get home. This doesn't worry them as much as uh, what they feel is surveillance from private companies uh, when they access the internet and what data those companies know about them. Again, you know, maybe they, they recognize that the government might have the right to that information too if, uh, if someone convinces a judge to sign a, a warrant for that information. But I find it fascinating that uh, these young people today are far less worried about, um, about what the government knows about them uh, and much more concerned about what uh, private companies might do with the data uh, that's generated um, about them, uh, either by themselves uh, through social media, or um, inadvertently through um, through interacting in the internet or with the internet uh, through cookies uh, and otherwise.
1: And that's corporate uh, the threat of corporate invasion, but you, the data that is available. Uh, for example, DNA data—you can't get more personal than that. Uh, that it, there are bad actors on the internet as well. There are hackers who steal intimate financial and health data, and of course, there is the the horrors of revenge porn uh, that is is out there. How do the courts look at those issues?
0: So. Uh, intriguingly, uh, intriguingly, so revenge porn is going to be um, something that's separate. So let me first talk about, uh, I'll first talk about, about data privacy and the very intriguing things that are happening now uh, in the United States with regard to that. Congress has yet to pass uh, a, a data privacy law. So data privacy legislation is just not happening on the national level. Intriguingly, however, some states like California and Illinois, um, to name two, have passed really comprehensive data privacy legislation. And and because of these um, uh, really powerful laws, uh, attorneys have brought... Successful class action lawsuits against social media companies. So, for example, one that comes to mind um, argued that uh, that if there, uh, if 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 a company was um, scanning the internet for faces, and thereafter um, uh, figuring out. Uh, what person belonged to what face, so putting together a name with a face, that that could be a privacy invasion because of this data privacy, a data privacy statute, um, biometrics privacy um, and data privacy. And, and so these state statutes and these class action lawsuits have been the drivers then of data privacy uh, in in the United States, and and what I think is really interesting about that is that even though Congress hasn't taken a step toward this yet, it hasn't enacted legislation. These states have, and they've made companies that uh, that retain data, they've made those companies then be very fearful. Uh, about using that data in a way that that is um, that would violate those statutes. And so the prediction is, and this is not my prediction, this is what uh, privacy officers at companies suggest, uh, that within the next five years, that because of these state statutes and because of these lawsuits that have... Um, have charged these companies with millions and millions of dollars in fines uh, that, that it within five years, the United States will have a much more European sensibility uh, with regard to data privacy. So we'll begin to follow then uh, the GDPR uh, protection for, um, for data uh, as opposed to um, the much more willy-nilly uh, protection for data uh, that exists in uh, in the United States at least on on the federal level so so I think that that's really intriguing you know you might think that uh, that a, a law in California might not have much power uh, to protect people outside of California residents uh, and yet that law along with the class action lawsuits that have, um, been brought uh, under it and and similar laws in other states uh, have really made um, a change, the privacy officers say uh, with regard to their view of the need to to protect um, data uh, and um, and not use it. The other um, intriguing thing is this shift, and probably they what happens is these companies recognize now, Uh, exactly what I suggested, that my students, the young people today, care very deeply about privacy uh, and are very aware of the potential for privacy invasions, especially with regard to their data. And so they're marketing themselves as being very privacy sensitive. Uh, And and one of the ways to do that is by suggesting that they will protect uh, the data just as strongly as the data is protected in Europe. Uh, and and using that as um, as some uh, marketing uh, scheme, so that uh, so that young people uh, will begin to trust um, trust these companies. So so I find that that incredibly um, incredibly intriguing, uh, and also very hopeful. Uh, even though we can't get Congress to do it, uh, it seems that uh, state legislatures uh, and courts are are taking action where uh, where Congress um, hasn't.
1: That's really very encouraging. Uh, that prediction is, is uh, encouraging, and I hope it's correct because uh, the pendulum has swung very far in the other direction. That's uh, right. And there,
0: there was this notion, too, initially, uh, the, way, the way courts uh, were deciding these cases involving data privacy. There was the suggestion that, hey, if you interact on the Internet, you're agreeing to share the information with someone that means the information can be used however the the company you've interacted with wants to you're willingly sharing that information well there's been an about face over the the course of the past um, past couple of decades or so uh, with regard to that certainly
1: that's that's good news. Uh, I'm very interested in the notion that you describe in your book, that privacy is essential for creativity and spirituality, uh, that that liberty entails the protection of those human functions. So tell us about what Justices Warren and Brandeis said about it in the Harvard Law Review article, The Right to Privacy.
0: Sure. They they wrote this article. They were uh, uh, two um, lawyers. They met uh, at Harvard Law School uh, and uh, became fast friends. Um, and and Louis Brandeis moved away from Boston uh, to begin practice um, his practice of law, uh, but but came back to Boston because his friend Sam Warren kept. Uh, Suggesting that they would be great together if they opened up um, a law firm together uh, in Boston. Sam Warren was um, was very rich had um, had these connections. Of course, Louis Brandeis was brilliant. Sam Warren recognized um, that uh, and recognized that um, that they were close both um, in in terms of friendship, but also uh, had the same um, uh, desire to work hard uh, and do a good job uh, in law, and so. So the two uh, eventually in 1890 uh, decided to write this law review article um, that they titled "The Right to Privacy," and and what I found in my research is that uh, is that the, the article the impetus for the article really came from Sam Warren that uh, that he. He was particularly interested in um, in the right to privacy because the media was very interested in his family. He was a millionaire. Uh, he had married the Secretary of State's daughter. Um, he was really good friends with Grover Cleveland. Uh, and so they would get together and they would complain about media and media's reporting uh what they considered private um details uh about about their family um and otherwise and so he suggested to lewis brandeis that they um that they write this um this article uh asking for privacy and suggesting that uh that people needed privacy as you suggest to become um complete individuals that that in other words if you think that someone is looking in on you always, if you think that every single thing you do is going to be revealed to other people, you just won't live um, your your best life. You you won't uh, be able to um, explore um, certain things. You won't be able to uh, to. Um, uh, and make a fool of yourself behind um, closed closed doors, and so so the article uh, uh, touches um, on that. Um, it's very much uh, a celebration of privacy and the need for privacy, uh, but it also suggests that uh, the media uh, needs to be curtailed in some way um, to prevent those sorts of things from uh, from being revealed. And, and what I think is, is interesting uh, about this is that even though both agreed in letters um, between them that it was, um, it was Sam Warren's idea to, to write the article, Louis Brandeis also has a really intriguing backstory uh, because the article was written in 1890. In the 1880s, Louis Brandeis represented um, an author, uh, I should say a, a, a publishing house, so a book publisher. Uh, and the, the, the book, the, the publisher had, um, had published a book titled Cape Cod Folks. And the book was called a novel, except it wasn't. It was real. What had happened was a young woman went to a small town on Cape Cod and agreed to be a teacher there. Uh, and uh, and so for uh, a couple of years, took very detailed notes about her neighbors, about her students, and thereafter put together what she suggested was a novel um, uh, that actually accurately reported a lot of things that those individuals in that small town had said and done Moreover, she used their real names, and so they sued for uh, invasion of their right to privacy in the 1880s. Louis Brandeis intriguingly does not represent the people, he represents the publisher. But his argument is that this is indeed, this was indeed an invasion of their privacy. It's just that the law didn't yet recognize that as an invasion of privacy. And so even though the two of them, meaning uh, Warren and Brandeis, write these letters that suggest that Warren uh, is the reason behind the right to privacy, certainly uh, Louis Brandeis uh, had thought about this right as well when he represented uh, the publisher. And and highly relevant uh, here to the discussion uh, is that he settled those cases, and so so the publisher did not win. Um, Louis Brandeis, uh, representing the book publisher, uh, gave money then to all those people uh, who'd had uh, their private lives revealed um, in that book. So so it's interesting to think about when you when you think about the language in the right to privacy and the the, the, the protection for um, for um, human beings and creativity and um, and uh, and self, um, you have to wonder how much of that language uh, was inspired in part by these people on Cape Cod who had um, their their personal lives um, revealed uh, in the book. Um, uh, published by the book publisher represented by, by Louis Brandeis.
1: That goes back pretty far. Uh, what, what was the right to be forgotten, and do you think it's still relevant?
0: So we think of the right to be forgotten as this very European concept, uh, and yet it's something that's existed in U.S. law um, uh, as well um, and has for for a very long time. What there's there's something in uh, in law that's um, in in the U.S. called the Restatement, and the Restatement is uh, sort of like a, a treatise written by uh, law professors, lawyers, and judges, uh, suggesting what the law is in the United States. And in in 1977. Uh, the restatement authors described what the right to privacy looked like in the United States. And one of the examples that they used was uh, Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. And, and the restatement authors suggested that if Javert uh, had ferreted out uh, information about Jean Valjean's past criminal life, so uh, so Jean Valjean, 20 years ago, had been um, convicted of uh, um, stealing a loaf of bread, uh, say. The restatement authors say that if that happened 20 years before and if someone found that out and revealed it to a newspaper and the newspaper published that information, it could lead to a valid uh, invasion of privacy claim, and so and so. Even though we think about this right to be forgotten as being a decidedly European concept, um, inspired by the internet, uh, long before the internet, in 1977, uh, there was the suggestion that it, it existed in U.S. law as well, and and the way that's um, expanding now. Uh, intriguingly is that uh, courts today, some courts uh, are suggesting that there is a privacy interest in one's criminal past. And there have been courts that have ordered uh, accurate criminal histories removed from the internet because of the very real harm in the present that can be done to people who made mistakes in the past, and so and so? That's a really interesting conflict again between truth, between um, government information, information that was once known—an arrest, uh, a conviction—versus uh, this privacy interest after a number of years, um, and the suggestion that um, that even though it's true, uh, there can be. Um, uh, a privacy interest and maybe even a valid claim for invasion of privacy should someone reveal um, one's criminal past.
1: Now, um, journalism is not a profession in the way medicine, law, psychology and others others are. Uh, There are no required educational standards or licensing exams for journalists. And we get a lot of our information from uh, so-called citizen journalists. Um, How does, and in your view, how should the law deal with the notion that uh, we're all journalists now?
0: Well, it's it's uh, so um, as we suggested, I I worked as a journalist for a number of years before um, I became became a lawyer uh, and I also taught uh, journalism. So I taught uh, in the journalism school at the University of Illinois. And I remember back then uh, this this celebration uh, that. Anyone who wanted to could publish whatever they wanted on the internet. And as you suggest, the mantra was, we're all journalists now and isn't this great. Uh, and, and the problem is that we're, we're not all journalists, even though it's not a profession, as you as you suggest, uh, journalists do uh, abide by ethics codes. Uh, and those, those ethics codes... Uh, help them make the call: uh, what to publish and what not to publish. So, so for example, I mean, routinely, probably in uh, a number of newsrooms, uh, right at this moment, uh, there are discussions about truth and whether or not that truth should be revealed because of the privacy interests on the other side. So, so there are very strong ethics. uh, not to reveal um, certain things that that a journalist knows that the public would want to know, but the journalist has decided um, to protect uh, the person on privacy grounds and not to reveal um, the information. Because publishers on social media and otherwise don't have that same sort of ethic sense uh, that's how then, um, and I know you asked about uh, revenge porn um, as an example previously. That's why uh, these websites came to be that published truth like nude photographs, for example. Uh, and, uh, and, so, and so that is not journalism. No journalist would publish such a thing. And because now judges are recognizing that those sorts of websites exist um, and, uh, and that people on social media and otherwise uh, publish a lot of things that journalists wouldn't. Uh, you have uh, courts coming down much harder on media, as I suggested um, earlier, and deciding that, uh, that privacy should be respected over truth. In very surprising cases, and, and in a number of these cases, they literally say um, it's because of the sorts of things that are revealed on the internet. Uh, we need to respect privacy more. Uh, we need to find the publisher liable for invading privacy uh, by, by publishing that sort of thing. And, and that language, again, uh, can have a very chilling effect on um on what I like to consider real journalists, uh, those who do struggle um with ethics issues and who make the call to to publish something that someone doesn't want um to um to to have published.
1: Finally, Amy, uh, your book, Seek and Hide argues in favor of the need for balance between the dignity of the individual or the family, which impacts their liberty, uh, and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and the public's right to know. Uh, But law is a blunt instrument, and you've talked about various legal approaches that are being used now, but how, in your view, should law and public policy address these competing interests given or do you have a view of a principle that should be followed for law and public policy to address these issues?
0: Sure I'm I'm not afraid of the word dignity. I know that a number of my colleagues are uh, but I'm not afraid of it. I think that it's an important, uh, consideration in invasion of privacy cases, to take a look at the dignity of the individual and to make that part of the consideration into whether or not their privacy has been, has been invaded. Uh, without that, you, you just don't have that protection for person. Uh, that has existed for a very long time uh, in um, uh, or did exist uh, in U.S. law for a very long time, even before um, 1890. So, so I like to think of, of law uh, not as being such a blunt instrument, uh, but um, at, at least in that sense, but being more nuanced and balanced uh, like I uh, like i i try to be in that final chapter um, in which i suggest that um, that dignity should uh, be part of um, of the consideration in, in invasion of privacy claims we do that um, an awful lot in law we decide what is uh, offensive we decide uh, what is reasonable and what isn't uh, and very often, we leave it to the juries to um, to make the call. Uh, and if we focus on the dignity of um, of the individual, uh, uh, sometimes that will be dangerous. Uh, sometimes a jury might decide that um, that someone's dignity is at issue, even if they're uh, the president and their tax returns were were released. Uh, but my hope would be that, um, that that the judge in that case or an appellate court uh, would then overturn uh, those those interests. So so that's what I like to think about. Um, I like to think that that maybe the law will go in that direction. And even as someone who who celebrates and who cares deeply about about press freedom, uh, I don't see that as particularly harmful, knowing. Just how strong ethics codes are on the journalism side uh, and uh, and how any journalist would be able to um, well explain uh, why they decided to report uh, some truth uh, that an individual might consider um, privacy invading.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Amy. And for your thoughtful insights on this important, and so very timely topic.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.